Damn, son, where'd you mint this? Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Pattern Recognition, Episode 9. I am Chuck Anderson. Today I am uh, talking with... Lindsay Howard and Aileen Skyers of the somewhat recently formed Gemma. Recently, as in about six months ago, they launched. Gemma is a artist-led fund, um, and they act kind of in a curatorial role, uh, putting out projects and work by artists that they've come to love and develop relationships with over the years. And uh, they've really put together a pretty amazing, small, nimble team of about six people that uh, we get into a little bit to run this thing. And um, it's been really great to watch what they've built. I, I really actually appreciated what they put out as their very first project was kind of an in-house project, a free mint of these artist manifestos that uh, was kind of like inspiration from the design of Magic 8-Ball. And it was a really nice way for them to kind of come out of the gate I like the idea of them putting a whole framework uh, together for this new endeavor that they've built and then kind of doing the first project themselves. I think it uh, was really good idea. And, and since then, they've uh, really started to craft and build up um, what uh, is shaping up to be a really wonderful roster of artists that they are affiliated with and, and working with and supporting uh, who will eventually uh, they themselves be sort of part of the organization and help sort of lead uh, how this thing grows and continues to move. So yeah, really great to talk to them about their journeys, how they arrived at this point. Uh, you know, for me as an artist, I'm really interested in people who sort of organize art and put framework and contexts around art, um, the idea of curating and uh, giving more thoughtfulness and, and parameters, I suppose. Maybe parameters may be the wrong word, but yeah, context really is, is, the, is the king here around art and especially right now with digital art where there's such kind of open horizon on on you know the opportunities to do this there's only so many people who i think are are really experts in this area right now and can do this the way that they are doing it so i'm really exciting to watch them grow and talk to them kind of at the beginning here of their journey with Gemma. so yeah i hope you enjoy the conversation also just want to say thanks to everybody who's continued to listen to the show and support it. We've seen really incredible numbers uh, on the mints uh, on Zora this last couple of weeks, especially over the last week. I feel like everything jumped a whole bunch. It's been it's been really really cool to see that, and, and really appreciate everybody who listens. You can also listen to the show now on all streaming platforms. So it's on Spotify, Apple, and pretty much anywhere else I could imagine that you might listen to this. So. If that makes it easier uh, to listen to, to me, that's really the, the intent is for people to, you know, kind of be met wherever you're at, where you listen to things. So I hope uh, that makes, you know, you'll still go mint the show, but obviously actually listening to it on sort of more native podcast and audio players is, is more ideal than listening to it in the browser tab. So that's definitely the reason behind doing this. Although obviously our main goal is continue to support the show with the, with the free mint. So anyways, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Lindsay Howard and Aileen Skyers of Gemma. All right. I am joined today by Lindsay Howard and Aileen Skyers. How are you guys? Doing good. Thanks for having doing us. Of course, aka Gemma. Should I be introducing you uh, as a as a unit here? <laughs> Where are you guys coming to us from? Uh, we're actually both in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, right now. Aileen has a studio here, and and I've lived here for a long time. Okay, nice. And 
Lindsay, you and I met uh, two, probably just over two years ago now, I, I want to say, um, kind of at the sort of advent of <laughs> NFT times, <laughs> like the before the line in the sand of you know early 2021. Um, when did you guys meet first? And this is for either of you, whoever wants to just chime in. Um, we actually met or started working more formally together right around that same time, um, two or three years ago. Um, but I would say that for the past decade, we've really known each other's work as media curators and writers covering digital art and culture. Um, we both operated separate galleries in Brooklyn. Um, Lindsay founded 319 Shoals in 2010. And that was a space that focused on bringing net-based work into the physical space and translating back them back online. And then um, in 2017, I established a gallery called Housing in Bed-Stuy, which had a focus on highlighting work from uh, underrepresented artists in the gallery space. Yeah, it was interesting, like reflecting on that recently, where we realized that we were both focused on trying to elevate um, more artist voices in the contemporary art world and then provide context about their practices, but coming from like two different angles. So it, it makes a lot of sense that we found each other. Hmm. Did you, um, Lindsay, I feel like maybe you and I have had this conversation uh, at some point before, but uh, did you both always know you'd end up in, in arts in some capacity or was there like a sea change or a shift in life at any point, or was this always kind of like destiny from childhood to end up in this realm? Maybe not the specific thing you're doing right now, but um, was it always in the cards for both of you or did either of you think you were going to be more like visual artists yourself rather than kind of what you're doing now, which we'll get into in a little bit, but um, yeah, curious to know. I think as a child, I don't know your answer, Lindsay. Yeah. yeah we're going to learn about each other right now. So I think like as a child, I really wanted to grow up and be a lawyer or a soccer player. Like it was definitely going to be one of those two. But in practice, um, I remember as a kid when I was like eight or nine years old, I started um, a summer camp for other kids in the neighborhood where I would organize mm. arts activities and they would, their parents would pay like $50 a day for them to come over to my house and we would make art together. So I think I was a little baby entrepreneur doing <laughs> doing yeah. art stuff and trying to make art happen. How did you get away with having them pay 50 bucks? <laughs> because it was really rigorous. I had a whole daily program, like seven wow. it was like a week long thing. Um, and I just always liked, I always liked bringing people together around creative work and mm. um, hosting parties or <laughs> hosting exhibitions. And, um, salons and having that sort of conversation. So that was very natural. Mm. Aileen, I'm curious about your response to this question. Oh my gosh. It sounds like you were a hustler. Um, that is incredible that you were such an entrepreneur at such a young age. Um, I've studied art pretty much my whole life. I went to like an arts middle school and then a, you know, performing and visual art high school where I focused predominantly on printmaking actually. Mm. So I was doing a lot of etching and screen printing um, right up through senior year and then transitioned into um, video art and moving image work in, in undergrad. 
um, where I had like a really influential professor um, push me in that direction. Um, Where'd you go to? Yeah, where where, where was I, this at? Um, that was at University of South Florida. So I grew up in Tampa, Florida. Oh, okay. Did undergrad there. And then I moved to Portland where I studied um, critical theory for grad school. So, okay. So I can definitely draw like the line. It's not like you guys pivoted from being, uh, you know, like a biology major or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, it's funny. I'm, I'm interested in this topic because from as young as I can remember, I just always wanted to be an artist of some kind design. Like I started noticing like logos on, you know, like food and basketball cards. And I just, I was very drawn to wanting to be the one making stuff like this um, really from a young age. And, and I think like I always sort of dreamt of maybe being a basketball player, like every kid does, you know, but not in any sort of realistic way. There was never any other um, path for me, um, despite coming from like a very long line of pastors, like in my family, like my dad, my grandfather, my great grandfather. And I felt like, you know, there was maybe like, Oh, I, you know, it was just, I knew I was just like, that's not, it's not who I am. It's not what I want for my life. I just, I was new. And then my wife, uh, was always like creative, but kind of like a left-minded type, like very, like, sh- like just technical, like really like crafty and creative, but can really like, you know, understand how to, I don't know. She's like way more handy than me, for example. And, um, but she went one path kind of towards that and then ended up changing and is a lawyer now. And she uses sort of the creative skills still in some interesting ways, but I'm really interested in kind of like the, you know, I think maybe actually it's even like the itch that I scratch by doing these interviews in a way, because I'm, I live so in my own sort of right brain. And I'm very curious about, you know, people who do things or take art and, and either curate it or uh, organize it, I think, in ways that I think I struggle to do. So I'm really fascinated by this. And I think like my coming at these interviews, I realized uh, last week. So I think this is the, you guys are the ninth one of pattern recognition. Then of course I've done a bunch um, formerly with, you know, pirate radio and then, and before that too, but Jen Stark was, I think the first sort of purely visual artist that I interviewed on this one so far, everyone else has been some kind of builder, entrepreneur, like, you know, creative director um, type. And my conversation with her was, was really unique to a lot of the other ones. So um, I want to ask, so Lindsay, you didn't have a background necessarily making art, well, you did make art, but you were kind of like drawn to figuring out how to uh, put some uh, fr- like framework around it, maybe, especially for for other people. Um, so do you, and this will be a question for both of you. But so with all that said, do you currently make art in any capacity, Lindsay? Do you find yourself like drawn to wanting to sit down and like draw or photos or like how do you exercise being like, you creative or does what you're doing right now through sort of curation, get that out of you. I think it's really interesting to hear your reflections on like who you thought you might be or your wife and like the different ways that we like over the course of our lives, the more that we're exposed to, the more we sort of learn about ourselves, these initial skills mm-hmm. and impulses, like find different ways of being manifested. So yeah. thinking about like how I wanted to be a lawyer 
Okay, that every day, basically, I'm now making the case for one artist or another to an mm. audience and writing why you should care about them or where their work is coming from and how to contextualize it, which feels very similar to how you would make a case in a courtroom or mm. like being a soccer player is like very similar to being in a DAO. It's <laughs> like mm. lots of complexity. <laughs> Interesting. Just, like the team effort have, mentality, do you mean? like? The team effort, different, like you're, um, there is this kind of level of equality, but um, each person contributing what it is that they're good at. Um, and so I think it's just the more that we kind of learn and have access to new things, the more we sort of um, just like sharpen what it is that we're good at or what we want yeah. to continue. Hmm. So I think I um, have a background in making art that I, um, tried out and played with but I'm more interested in, in writing mm. um and so I do have like a novel sitting around somewhere that will be re revisited at some point but the way that I mostly get to like access that part of myself is through talking with artists and then writing about their work which I find extremely fulfilling cool um Aileen how about you yeah I would say I have been a practicing artist for many, many years. I haven't minted any of my own works. And um, in terms of what I'm working on lately, it's just a little bit more slow going. Um, I had a really great conversation with Josh Citarella about this recently. Um, and it feels like we're both coming from a very similar place in terms of having all of these weird ideas and like these sense perceptions that you want to see come into fruition as an artist and like this need and this drive to pull that out of your innermost self and see it crystallized and kind of received. Um, and as um, we've both, or as I've gotten older, um, I think that I have put a little bit more focus on helping others to realize their visions and making opportunities or making sure there's space there for artists who um, are in a place that I'm familiar with um, at a younger age, or like mm -hmm. maybe just not really um, seeing that space for them there. So it's given me a lot of joy and a lot of gratification in curating to make space for others at this point in my life. Cool. Yeah. I think, uh, I can totally understand that through like, again, like even just doing these interviews, I think, um, you know, to me, the hallmark of a, of a good artist is a, is an interested artist and like a curious artist and, and really like any person, not even just artists, but in the interest of our conversation, like I find, um, you know, that the people whose work to me, like, you know, has a lot of depth and has a lot of interest in it. I can tell that they're either some combination or one of a little of everything of, of either well-traveled or well-versed in, you know, their particular field or their taste are really wide ranging. I think those things come out through work, through work. Um, but I think having, I mean, it sounds like you both could be teachers if you wanted to channel that energy. I don't know, maybe, I don't know, maybe not, but just the, the, the draw to sort of foster creativity in other people, I think, is an interesting one. Um, when, when, when people kind of go that route, I think, um, 
I see I myself like be a therapist more than I okay, teach. sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> helping people draw out the sure, yeah, yeah. Either way, art, an art therapist, a therapist, yeah, taught whatever. I mean, that I think uh, a good t- teacher, good therapist are probably fairly interchangeable at, at times. Um, but I think it's such an important practice and an important role. And I would say even now, especially in in Web three and in this climate that's kind of brought a lot of people together, us people who are listening to this for probably the most part. Um, at, at first, I'm curious to get your guys take in regards to curation and what you both bring to the table with, and we'll get again to, to Gemma a little more specifically in a bit, but, um, it felt like at first it was truly wild west. It was just everybody just mint everything, like put it out there. Like, let's just go, go, go. The money's there. The ETH is high. The collectors are just, people are buying each other's stuff. Kind of just thinking like this can only go up forever. Um, the idea of curators even felt rejected almost a little bit at first. If I, I mean, I, I don't know, memory serves. Um, I, I remember pretty clearly a lot of discussion on Twitter and on clubhouse at the time, just like, finally, we don't need, we don't need people to, and I think there was a mixing of gatekeeping and curation, which are distinct things, and obviously, you know, can go hand in hand, maybe, but also are kind of at odds with each other. But um, at some point along the journey of the last couple of years with NFTs in particular, it felt like curation has become more and more important to add clarity, context, voice, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I'd I'd love to hear both of your takes on how you've experienced that change in the last couple of years, why maybe curation um, has become more paramount to the artists participating in this space and even how you define curation in this space, maybe relative to, you know, net art pre NFT, pre NFTs, or, you know, it's more traditional gallery world. Um, and, and kind of what you're both seeing this role, you know, in this space. So many great questions here. I know, I know. know. God, this is like 10 essays that need to be written in response to those like amazing questions. Um, I think like one of the things that I want to respond to and what you just said is that it seemed like at first everything was getting minted and kind of thrown around and I actually remember it a little bit differently that there was a lot of hesitancy about what it meant to mint an artwork and if there was some sort of like spiritual significance to Mm. that. And then as the money started coming through, there was like a little bit of, there's still some criticality, but a little bit of a shifting tide um, as we started to like understand more about the technology and about the community and just like develop more confidence um, as an artist and creative class basically in web three, um, building relationships with each other and kind of understanding who we wanted to be in this space. Um, I think early on, um, there was less of a need for curation because there was less work to select. Um, and I've always thought of curation as an act of translation and then also, um, an act of selection and kind of sorting. So I think now at this point with so many works on chain and so many artists who are um, 
extremely fluent in, in this technology and releasing new work, there really is a need for um, partnerships with curators to support those releases, to contextualize them, and ensure that they're like finding the right audiences. Mm. Yeah. Aileen, I don't know if you have anything you want to add yourself, but yeah, you don't have I mean, to. I would, I would agree. I'd say that just as the space has evolved, we've seen so many more just gobs and gobs of images being minted onto multiple platforms at a time. You know, um, I think that cultural context is really key here. And, mm -hmm. and that's kind of what curation brings to the table and why it's been, it's been more of a need in recent history. Um, what were some of the first good examples that you both experienced uh, that made, it was actually an interesting point you made, by the way, Lindsay, that you said you remember a little differently that people were very, it was almost like, well, what's that first Genesis piece going to like this, this, like people very sort of, it was so precious. Or, very precious. So I don't mean that people were just uploading and minting like every last thing they had, but it was a little more like you'd find a collector because maybe another artist might bid on it. It just felt like there was more thing, like money was getting tossed around a little easier. People, I just, every other day it was someone's going to new one of one on foundation on super air on wherever, like, and you know, nifty gateway collections, just going mad, just all that kind of stuff. Um, so maybe less that people were just minting a bazillion things and more that it just, most things were selling because the market was such that it sort of worked that way. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I'm curious when uh, or maybe where, you know, you, you both um, were working, you know, at the time of projects you were working on or if you saw their platforms doing it um, and you thought, oh, like there's there's an avenue here for like real proper curation and doing what I would like, you know, like to do eventually. Um, who are some of the first platforms or what were some of the platforms you think did it? Well, even if they're not around or aren't doing it still now, I'm, I guess I'm curious if there was any particular early like bodies of work, sort of group shows or, you know, curated like avenues for, for work on NFTs that sort of hit home for you guys. Brian Dreitker has always been one of my favorite art critics, and he's now the editor-in-chief at Outland. And I was originally reading his reviews of some of the pieces that were happening in Web3 on art in America. And then he moved over to Outland and just started doing a really expansive, in-depth coverage across you know, individual artist practices, project releases, interviews, um, critiques. And that I felt added a whole new dimension mm. to this space where suddenly we were allowed to even... <laughs> Have a, say a critique of a piece, like, but like someone needed to, way. someone needed um, to pave pave that a little bit, do it first. And this is something that Brian has been doing for, you know, 10, 15 years for net art and other types of experimental um, projects. And so for him to bring his expertise mm -hmm. into the web three space, I feel like was a huge boon for our, all of us um, and helped just add a, a lot more legibility to a bunch of the works that were being minted and shared out. Mm. And who are some of the first artists that were exciting to both of you where you were like, Oh, okay. Like this feels significant. This feels important. Um, I wish I could 
have that or bid on this or whatever. Like, what else just maybe some of those sort of That's like quote so unquote funny. early memories, even though we're talking about like two years ago. Um, but I'd be curious, like, what are some of the defining uh, early memories for maybe even like it was artists, but also just like, you know, I mean, Lindsay, I mean, I really kind of got to know you, but I'm on Clubhouse and Aileen, I'm sure you were on a lot. I don't know if you and I like spoke on there, but just some of those early like foundation clubhouses, like it was a Tuesday nights or something and we're all in COVID and it was hour. just, yeah. I mean, it was just a real interesting oh uh, sort of, yeah, I mean that was kind of the dawn of a lot of the sort of communities and people forming and and getting to know each other and um sort of evolving into what I don't know, I don't know where that conversation exists now, probably more fragmented in like discords in the occasional Twitter space or things like this. Um but uh yeah. I don't know any any like particularly fond like nostalgic again quote unquote nostalgic memories that stick out to you as formative um right now early on good or bad or whatever, whatever you can feel comfortable sharing. I just, you know, as you're asking that question, I was just reflecting on so many different experiences. Some of them were extremely well publicized. Some of them were very quiet moments. Mm. Um, and it just make is making me feel extremely lucky for the work that I've been able to do, um, with artists for quite some time, but especially in this space, um, one of the ones that stands out to me the most is working with um, the creator of Neon Cat and releasing that iconic meme as an NFT um, in early 2021. That was such an emotional experience because that image had been shared millions and millions, <laughs> billions of times mm -hmm. on the internet um, and never accrued any value back to the original artist. Yeah. Um, who has a very sincere and genuine um, creative practice. And so to see this very emotional moment as we were sitting on video chat on Twitch together as the numbers were kind of like ticking up and knowing that um, he was going to be compensated to the tune of something like $650,000 for, for that work that he put in is was a really, Amazing. really incredible moment. And to me, that very much crystallized mm. um, the importance of this technology and and the potential for what it would be able to do in the future. It's a great answer. I remember that. And it's really was one of those like moments of understanding that artists and creators could start to reclaim some, some ownership. I mean, that was why I got into it. You know, I had images sort of co-opted and stolen over the years. And I thought this feels like a way to put it back on the internet for the first time and be attached to it for life, you know, sell whether it sells or not, but the importance of doing that again, uh, you know, let alone for someone like him to have be able to reclaim, you know, ownership, but also finally profit off of something that had just become sort of, I don't know, the idea of something belonging to the internet is an interesting concept. How do you, how do you guys feel about that? Well, we're talking a lot about artists right now, but I think what's important is that um, we're, he was able to have that successful sale because the collectors were ready to meet him there. Like mm -hmm. the Web3 community understood the significance of that work and um, in showing up to bid on the piece and bring it into their collect, bring it into their collection with that one or with Edward Snowden or with X shells. Um, the collectors who are showing up for the artists are really making history. Um, and it's, it's showing up in press, it's showing up in acad academic transcripts and books and being able to have these incredible moments as both the artists sharing their 
creative visions and then also the collectors who are there to support them and mm-hmm. ensure it gets out there, yeah. which is incredible. And this was all happening at foundation. Is that where you two met initially or not? I know you guys have, sorry, met prior to that, but were you both, were you working together there? Yeah, we okay. were. Um, Lindsay was one of the earliest hires yep. at foundation working on all of the sort of like non-technical and community side. And I was working there um, on the communications um, side. Cool. Um, and then uh, maybe talk a little bit about for both of you, uh, you have both both left foundation and then where kind of what, what what's, I mean, I guess bringing us up, just stop short of, of Gemma's formation, but what was kind of the next next phase in between post foundation pre pre coming together here now what you guys are doing now. So we were both working, um, you know, at an NFT marketplace. And then I think we're drawn to the idea of DAOs and there's no better way to learn than to just jump in (laughs) and figure it out. So Mm -hmm. we both went to, um, friends of benefits and, that's where we met, Chuck. I think maybe mm-hmm. started working together closely on the curation pod, which was, you know, shout out FWB curation pod is sick. <laughs> um, did some really fun work there, like commissioning artist projects. Did a takeover of the OpenSea homepage. Mm-hmm. A bunch of great artists. Um, a pop up exhibition for FWB Fest, and just kind of got some experience learning about how. Um, you know, different aspects of the Web3 community. There are so many layers, so many networks. And um, I think NFT marketplaces and DAOs have some commonalities, but they're also a very different approach, especially if you're coming at it from the lens of curation. So we both kind of got to deep dive into that by um, experimenting with different approaches at FWB. Um, So... What were you part of other DAOs like pretty actively, or was FWB kind of the main one? I mean, how how crazy is the Discord sidebar looking? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, Discord! I was um on the like curator advisory panel for Flamingo DAO very early on, um, hanging out with like Bright Moments community and JPEG. I don't know if JPEG would call themselves a DAO. They feel DAOish. Hmm. But um, yeah, I think there are there are quite a few networks um, that I find really interesting in, in Web3. And, but I would say that FWB is the DAO that has been most compelling to me and where I've met so many of my great friends mm-hmm. um, in this space today. Aileen, how about you? Yeah, similarly, I was probably more involved with Friends with Benefits than any of the other DAOs I participated in. I was also an early member of like Dinner DAO, um, which was a really interesting space where we were um, experimenting with with decentralized dinners. Um, and I was an active contributor for Pack DAO for a little bit. Um, there were a few others that I was kind of intrigued by or contributing to, but I would say that FWB was definitely, um, it had such a draw um, and the community there was so vibrant, is so vibrant, I should say. Okay, so here's a big question. Do you think DAOs work? Do you think 
now a couple of years into them as a thing that, you know, people who are participating, like understand. Um, I feel like so many of them seem to have kind of come and gone or some have, you know, like really flourished, but get really small and become kind of, you know, um, like more tight knit groups. FWB is more of an expansive, um, community and are doing sort of really unique. I mean, I think it's almost, almost putting FWB aside because it is sort of its own, such a unique example that I think is, um, risen to the level of getting mainstream press and like everything that Trevor and Zhang and team have done with, you know, and Lindsay and everybody's participated in that has elevated it out of full-blown like internet geekdom and into like a more culturally aligned realm, I guess that others have just either not done or not really strived to do um, at, at least at that scale. Um, so putting, putting FWB aside is kind of like a gold standard of like a social kind of tile like that. Um, do you feel like, yeah, what's your, what's like the temperature check on them? And also like, is discord really the best place? It's just so weird. I, mean, I remember thinking <laughs> so like I had questions. to learn discord to participate in this stuff. And it's an exhausting application to have to like go into all the time and, you know, so I, I don't know what's the what's like the what's the vibe check on uh, the uh, on a on a dower right now for both of you. It feels like the common message that was publicized so heavily across the media the past two or three years that everything will soon be a DAO has definitely died down pretty significantly. I think that the philosophies and DAO frameworks that were set in place are going to continue to affect our uh, expectations of infrastructures for orgs more broadly. Um, but I think that DAOs really transpired as a result of people thinking in tandem about new forms of financing things and new forms of social organization during the pandemic and during a yeah. time where there was this very real material and social scarcity. Um, and I do think that they answer a lot of important questions with respect to the traditional orgs, like transparency and operating in a hierarchy. Um, but I think that what we've started to see as Web3 continues to mature is like some of these patterns have hybridized with other pre-existing models. And sometimes they've replicated the imbalances found in those other spheres. Um, so the workplace kind of like as DAO, uh, resulted in a lot of criticisms around like, oh, is this just permalancing? And, um, hmm. yeah, just, there's been a lot of kind of like stickiness and to your point about discord, you know, I think that part of the organizational stickiness of DAOs is that there's like this inadequacy of relying on so many tools and technicalities and systems to, uh, answer very nuanced conversations around like social problems and governance. So uh, it's still very early days. Mm -hmm. And I would say like the idea for Gemma very much came from our experiences working together at an NFT marketplace and then a DAO and seeing the opportunities and challenges of both of those models. So mm. we're really trying to set out um, and build something that takes the best qualities from each. And it's very much related to what Aileen was just saying about some of the structural things and challenges mm. 
um, in both of those spaces, really learning from that and wanting to expand and build on it. That seems like a good segue. So, okay. So when is the, I'm always interested in how things started because we all experience things in the world just in a way where until you kind of read into it, things just kind of exist to us. You know, we sort of like, not that take everything for granted, but I mean, when you don't really know how something came about and you just encounter it, like there it is. Um, so who was the, like, did, had one of you at one point said something to the other about, we should do something together. Was there a specific moment? Was it over a dinner? Like why the two of you, like, when was it? Did you both know? What's you know? the origin story? Yeah. yeah, but 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 even like really specifically, was there like a text like, hey, we should do a thing, just the two of us? Like what was, what initiated it? Like, you know, what was this very specific thing? The very specific thing is that last summer I was um, invited by D. Goins, one of the co-founders at Zora. Yep. Interesting. So many Genesis stories begin with, I met D. Goins. <laughs> I know. Um, and he's just going around like planting all these seeds and just waiting and and blooming all over. Um, he invited me to, um, give a talk with him at the fortune conference in Colorado last summer. And while we were there, we were talking about, um, actually, frankly, uh, like being a woman in web three and, or being an underrepresented person in web three and the experience of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and through the course of that conversation, um, he said something to me along the lines of like, you're a founder. And he said it so plainly. And it was something that I hadn't really occurred to me before. And I didn't really conceive of myself that way. I thought of myself mm-hmm. more as a collaborator. Once he said it, and um, we talked about it a little bit more afterward, um, Aileen and I went for a walk in what transmitter park or what park? What is it? Transmitter park in Brooklyn. Along yeah. The And I said the same thing to her. I was like, I think you're a founder. And we just started having a conversation about what it could look like to bring the best parts of our experiences from these different opportunities we've had in Web3 and expand on them to try and create something new. So Mm -hmm. the very specific thing, I think, were some matcha teas in Transmitter Mm -hmm. Park on a sunny sunny afternoon. Um, And then it just started building and kind of growing from there. Okay. So the name Gemma, tell me about it. What is it? What's what's the name? Where does it come from? Did you have a bunch of other names written down that in hindsight, you're like, good thing we didn't go with that? <laughs> we had one other we name. Had so many names. Yeah, we have a whole thought. If anyone needs some names, we got some other <laughs> I think I, uh, this question is so huge to me because I just think so <laughs> often about the fact that I'm coming up on 20 years of of no pattern and I'm glad I still like the name because, man, there were some bad ones in the bag back when I was 18 years old. And I'm glad I picked one that has grown with me because I know there's a lot of people. I, I have a friend personally who like change. He kind of just stopped using like the moniker you came up with. And was like, I that's just, I can't, I just got to use my name. It's just, it's, it's just, it's not cool anymore. <laughs> you know, which I always thought it was, but yeah, it's so yes. But tell me about the uh, Gemma <laughs> and tell me two of the other ones that you didn't use. Well, the one that um, I think Yuri may have actually gifted me the ENS for mythology um, because we were thinking of using the name mythology for a while, but it turns okay. out that the- line agency in New York city. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to compete with them for fair the, enough. Right. Shout out that. Yuri, by the way, who 
Shout out Yuri, because I now own that ENS in case mythology is listening to this podcast and wants to make an offer. Um, mythology and what's another one that we had? Oh, Silent Partner. Silent Partner. Still hits, nice. actually. Kind of like that. Yeah, I could see why it would have worked. But I think at the time we were really responding to like having just been at Art Basel and seeing so many crypto brands just slap their logo and their name all over everything, all of the artist projects, all of the flyers, all of the venues, and just thinking about like how much more elegant and interesting it is to do more of like a mischief style where the project emerges, people see it, it has high visibility, but you don't know exactly where it came from. It's a little mm-hmm. bit more interesting. So Silent Partner made sense as well. But nice. yeah, I think the, the idea for Gemma and how we like really rallied around that name is... Um, we liked the idea of um, aligning with a female name, um, thinking back to uh, different female patrons of the arts over the last many hundreds of years, like a Peggy Guggenheim um, and folks who have like commissioned artist projects and really helped shape a whole kind of generation of creative practice and and brought that into the world um, who are very aligned with certain styles or aesthetics or mediums. And so there's something about taking a singular feminine name and making it a collective Mm. that we found compelling. Was, so was Gemma like a name, like, was that just like, we like this word. It just, it works. It's not taken. Did that come? Was it someone's like great grandma's name or was I it think just it's everyone's grandma? It's everyone's I've since found out that it's everyone's grandma's name, but um, okay. I think I've just been watching a lot of Sopranos and was really into Italian names or something. Hmm. But yeah, there were just a few that we just liked and we like kind of the repetition yeah. and then doing the design work with our incredible designer, Carlos Sanchez shout out as we started to like some revs on the logo we realized um, Gemma kind of looks like game in rotation um, okay. like that as well, that there's oh, cool. okay. play- playfulness to it. If you scramble the letters, there, there is something about having an idea of, of something uh, like a name for something, but then writing it down and really looking at it and living with it as, as a dad to two kids, I know that. Cause I didn't like that either of my kids names when my wife first proposed them uh, like and so not that I didn't like them, but I was like, I don't know. And then like, you think about it and even like wrote it down and then saw it with my last name. And I'm like, no, like this looks, and I think, uh, you know, especially very visual people, I think there's something about seeing it that feels more almost impactful than even hearing it. And it started to grow on me. So I think when you write it down, like you said, you start to see it, start to envision what it means. It's a lot like the challenge of, I think this is, I don't know if either of you have gone through this before, but if you've ever pitched a a, a new logo or a logo refresh to a, a brand, it's almost always underwhelming because especially if it's sim- something that's simple, like I always think about the fact that if Nike didn't exist as we know it, and you just showed me this the swoosh shape now, and it didn't mean anything, uh, who's to say if it's powerful or good or interesting or not. I mean, it was only as sort of good as the people in the minds and the products and the athletes and everything behind it ended up representing something so clearly. And so I think we 
need to give things a chance, believe in them early on, and then let them grow into themselves to represent and sort of amass power over time. They don't really just come out of the gate with that most more often than not, at least they don't. Um, and, and the, uh, right, the, right, I, yeah. the right name will persist too. I think we had yeah. different columns we were moving over time and the sure. right kind of sticks around, even if you're not sure whether you like yeah. it or not, it's going to, it's yeah. going to kind of move through all of those different stages. And, mm-hmm. um, I remember us sitting down at, um, this restaurant, my wife, Frida's, um, yep. after one of our conversations and mapping out on the menu, kind of what our vision was. And it just kept coming back to Gemma and we kind of set out what the tone of it that we wanted it to be, what our goals were that we wanted it to be. And it got very abstract where it was like, mm. what's the, what's the feeling of this brand? Sure. What, what time of day is this brand? Like these mm. things that are yeah. very understood to someone like you, Chuck, doing like creative direction, but just going through that exercise, yeah. uh, such an early stage um, to create something entirely new together definitely feels like the experience of what we're trying to foster with artists, which is like helping them see the like plain blank white page mm-hmm. and be able to take that first step to mm. create something. Like we went through that ourselves too, to um, kind of create this structure um, and everything around it. Which is yeah. kind of- so you are, you're speaking very uh, s- sort of powerfully to me right now, because I'm in a, I'm in this moment where I find myself, I guess I'm just going to use this as like a therapy for a moment. Cause I'd like to hear both your reactions to this, but um, you know, I'm in this spot right now where if I just have like just blank canvas in front of me, just um, I just, my, my brain, this is how I've always been. And eventually I, I, I have figured something out, but then I've, I'm usually sort of uh, kept moving by client projects over the last 20 years. I would say that I've been propelled forward by brand partnerships, client projects, commissions, things like that. And it gives me my brief, my deadline, all my parameters, like all the stuff, even just, just enough to set me off on a path and I can, I can go. Um, when I sit down with kind of nothing in front of me and I just want to make for myself, and I think a lot of artists can relate to this. My brain turns into just this, like there's an arrow shooting off and all the 360 degrees, just like brain goes this way, going that way, this way. I try this thing. I like, feel like I just want to draw. I'm into drawing today. I mean, even again, I'm, you're talking to like the master of this with no pattern. I mean, truly like one day I'm like, I'm a photographer now. That's what I want to do. And then the next day I'm like, no, I'm not interested. And I want to just focus on this stuff. And um, so how do you, maybe going into like art therapist slash whatever mode, you know, uh, you know, back to your charging kids 50 bucks. Um, so in your roles right now, if, if you were going to commission and I haven't even asked you kind of the real sort of core mission of, of Gemma, but, um, maybe just as a bridge to that, um, how do you guys see artists be successful when they just want to make sort of for themselves, but are at that. And I, I hesitate to use creative block. Cause I think that's sort of almost a, I don't know, trite, uh, maybe way of putting it. I think there's a lot more that goes into it than just this generic creative block thing. But, um, that like, yeah, that space of like not feeling strong enough to move forward with a particular idea or have like a real concrete plan or, whatever, like, what have you seen propel artists forward into having those successful moments? Like, what have you seen as, you know, breakthroughs for artists or what do you guys 
suggest if you were working with an artist and they were kind of at this moment of, I'm not, I don't know what, what should I make? What should I do? Like, I don't know what to, you know, I think that's a big one. Like people struggle to figure out like, what should I even, what is my subject matter? So like, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Thinking from my personal like curatorial practice for a second before I'm <laughs> prescribing like what other people should do. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. One of, the, one of the like core things that I learned the hard way over time is that when I'm organizing an exhibition, writing about works, creating a collection of pieces that make sense together, it's never about uh, if, it, if the project isn't coming together, it's never about removing something. It's always that at least one more thing needs to be added. And so I learned this with like organizing exhibitions. It was not that, uh, you know, this artist with five pieces was throwing off the balance of these other eight artworks or something. It was that there needed to be a sixth piece mm -hmm. or something else, because the reason why those five pieces, for example, came in is because they're part of a sort of like linear experience of creativity coming into form. And that's what I think a lot about and have experienced many times over with Gemma is that when we're hitting a wall, it's because we need to keep moving and that um, yeah. mm -hmm. some sort of like magnetism you're going to feel, even if you don't understand why, um, there's an experience that we had where we were, um, working with Carlos Sanchez, um, our designer at Alien Studio. And we were having some really great conversations and ideas. And then we we're like, oh, let's break for lunch and ordered some salads, walked over to the bookstore across the street, opened a book. And the first line in this book was, um, all the world began with a yes. Incredible sentence. All the mm. world began with a yes. I was only able to like be in that place, open that book, see and recognize that sentence as being significant because of that mindset that I was in in that particular moment mm -hmm. and then shared it with them. Holy shit, this is an incredible sentence. And that ended up being the basis of our first project that we did called Mantras for Artists. Yep. Um, and that line is from a book by um, Clarice Lispector called The Hour of the Star from 1977. So the chances that we would come, acro come across the sentence um, and then shared it with Yuri and some other folks afterward who were like, oh my God, Clarice is mm. one of my favorite authors. And it just sort of snowballed into like creating more, creating more creativity or <laughs> creating more like space to move. Um, and yeah, that phrase just kept coming up in our discussions. And it's something that has been really relevant to the way that we think and the way that we're trying to like cultivate community around something that's like more connective and like supportive and collaborative. Mm. So I think that's what we're trying to do ultimately. Aileen, yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit for you too, um, both in your experience in the role you're in now, but also you as an artist, what some of the moments have been. And I, I kind of agree. I mean, like there's not really any sort of magic bullet on like breaking, you know, that kind of the barrier of trying to figure out as an artist, like, you know, what to make. There's not something anybody can just tell you and you can just kind of snap your fingers and make it happen. I, I fully agree that the only, I mean, it's sort of just like, like at some point you got to go like bull in the China shop mode and just like, 
kind of just <laughs> brute force the brute force your way through it and just keep doing stuff. Even if it means like, you know, you're doing like shit after shit, after shit, eventually there's one thing that's like, Oh, that, that there, that's something. A golden there. nugget. And then, yeah. And it really is. I mean, like every experience for me has been that way when I just keep experimenting until one of them kind of works. It's not unlike someone who would be an investor and you know, invest in 50 things and, you know, hope that one of them works and makes up for all the other 49 bad ones. It's kind of similar with, you know, with uh, creative ideas, but yeah. How about, how about you? Is there any personal sort oh. of stories there or? Well, it's interesting, Lindsay, that you brought up the mantras for artist projects, because we did think of that project as both a gift to the internet, but also a series of like over 100 poetic phrases that we were intentionally creating as a response or sort of a call to action to help artists kind of move past that blank page or that creative Mm -hmm. block and find inspiration in their practice. So it it sort of mirrors a magic eight ball and that you're supposed to kind of ask it some sort of question and, and, and um, what feels like an adequate response for you in that moment. I'd say in my personal curatorial practice and research, I believe deeply in having things kind of occur at a cadence that feels really holistic to the artists that are making the work. Um, I know that, so many different artists work so differently and some artists I can really respect their true slowness and experimentation. And then other artists really like to kind of throw a lot of kinds of different ideas at the wall to see what sticks. Um, But it's always better to have things done in a way that people feel empowered by than to have things done quickly. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the, as someone who has a very difficult time moving slowly and I just need like to have something be done by the end of the day so I can like get it out of my system or share it or whatever the case may be. I think, uh, I do think a lot about maybe as I get older, I don't know, but thinking about slowing down and and making sure that like whatever I do, like has some kind of intention or purpose behind it. That's maybe, uh, more than I've, I've given myself like the time to do in the past, but um, still, I think like the idea of like shipping and getting something done has always been like almost more important to me personally than having something be like just right. Cause that's the only way it's ever going to see the light of day. But I think that's to your point, <laughs> there's artists that just move so differently. I mean, the spectrums are just wild. I mean, someone could be totally fine with a single body of work over the course of a whole year, obviously if they can sustain their life by doing that and other people that would drive them mad to think about making like, you know, 10, 12, 15 works or something throughout the course of a, of a year. It's like, I got to make that many every day, you know? Um, so do you, about, yeah. something about like operating as, um, a collective that allows you to have some comfort in being able to do either one of those things. If you're just mm. managing your practice very singularly, it's, you feel that kind of loneliness of the slowness yeah. Yeah. or of speed or that pressure on yourself. But if it is in more of a kind of a supportive community structure there, it's, it allows for different types of personalities or different styles. Mm. You really do what they do best. Yeah. Which is okay. one of the things I find compelling about DAOs. If we, we can just throw one plug for DAOs in this. Sure. 
podcast episode. Okay. So if you had to sum up the mission of, and then I want to get into the projects that you guys are doing and kind of, you touched on the first one, but like, ultimately, like, how would you describe Gemma to someone not sort of within this world? Maybe not to, well, like like how you would explain it to like my mom is one question, but (laughs) give someone who's like, a little more understanding of, of, of like the art world and doesn't need to like a full blown explainer on like NFTs, but how would you, how do you just kind of sum up what you're doing with Gemma? Like what is Gemma's mission? Um, and is it, you know, um, or is it even like clearly defined fully? I mean, or what, yeah, I guess I'm just curious to, to get that sort of basic thing answered and then learn some of the, how you're delivering on that now in the last several months. And just for either of you. Do you want to respond, Aileen? I was just thinking of Willa Kerner on our team. She is always saying that we need to leave room for emergence. So that that phrase is something that kind of like echoes through everything that we're doing, that even if it is fixed, there's still space for emergence. You mentioned your team, by the way. What's the the makeup of, of Gemma? Lindsay, do you want to take that one? And then I'll share a little bit about what we are. Yeah. So Aileen and I are the co-founders of Gemma. Um, and then Willa Kerner has joined us um, doing uh, like supporting on a lot of like strategic thinking. Um, she has a pretty incredible background um, as a strategist working at SF MoMA, um, Kickstarter. She helped found the Creative Independent um, and has worked with a lot of like cultural institutions. So um, her perspective on strategy and then also um, just really clear language has been incredible. Um, Carlos Sanchez is an art director and designer. Um, I worked with him previously at Kickstarter and then at Foundation. And he um, is also an artist himself. So I also curated one of his pieces into a show at the Museum of Moving Image. And he's does some really incredible performances. Um, and then Sam Mason DeCares is our engineer. Um, he's uh, worked at Syndicate DAO and Foundation. And he's I think of him as um, being both like extremely talented at what he does as an engineer, but also as a creative coder. Like spending time with him feels very much like spending a time with any other like artist or creative person. He very much has his own kind of practice that I really respect and, and respond to as well. And then Shauna X is a designer and artist known for her really vibrant, bold works and major commissions. And she's been very much a part of the um, way that we've conceptualized Gemma. Well, we're going to get her on here soon i think by the way yes love incredible Shana. we met i met her for the first time in antwerp actually we both spoke at um dave i think it was called day for night festival if i'm not mistaken um but yeah i've always been a always been a fan um so that's awesome so did i don't know i've lost count is that six people total five six one two three four five six yeah okay cool and is that uh just been by the way, give me the timeline. When did Gemma officially start? Do you consider it? 
We started um, at the beginning of this year, and then our first project, uh, Mantras for Artists, uh, launched in April. So I would say okay. we went on, on chain for the first time in April of this and, year. And and that project was like an in-house project, right? That wasn't like another artist. So that was kind of your own doing, yeah, so yeah. Mantras which is artists. cool, by the way. I love that you started with that. I think it's... I don't know. I kind of think that's great. You build this framework for yourself and then deliver on it without going to another artist, but you just kind of use, you know, your guys team. Our team is very artistic and creative and, um, you know, we're all either writers or visual artists in one way or another. So it made sense to start with mantras for artists. And then um, our next project that went on chain was the Gemma manifesto in June 28th on June 28th. Um, So I think both of those kind of in-house projects were really good representations of how the team thinks about creativity and what it is that we want to um, manifest in Mm -hmm. Web3. Um, Aileen, I know you kind of split the questions up into the team and and then also uh, you were going to talk a little bit about like the overall mission and and kind of vision of what you guys want to do. I'm really curious, like what the, I don't want to ask what's the five-year plan kind of question. It's not oh so much gosh. that, you know, I don't, cause I don't know shit. I don't know what I'm gonna be doing five years. I don't think most, most of us do, but um, so you're seven months in, is it feeling like yeah. it's doing what you wanted it to do? It's definitely beginning to crystallize. As Lindsay said, the idea for Gemma has been percolating for quite some time as Mm -hmm. early as the beginning of this year, but we went on chain in the spring. Um, And we say that Gemma is an artist led fund meant to perpetuate creativity. And what we mean by that is that we hope to use these commissioning resources to foster new creative, ambitious ideas and projects from artists. Um, It feels important to note that this fund is based on chain. Um, and a part of the reason for that is it's a way to address some of the issues, and like some of the slowness that we've witnessed in terms of traditional funding organizations, which we have also called a lot of inspiration from. Um, but we're really focused on amplifying, curating, collecting, and building community in Web3. And in this initial stage, we can't speak to five years from now, but for the next six months, we are commissioning um, new additions from our founding artists, um, which is a really, really incredible group of people, including artists like Addie Wagonek, Petra Courtright, uh, Anna Kondo, who just released an edition with us today. We have a total of about 24 releases planned. And then the artists who contributed those commissioned works will make up our founding artists who take on the role of determining how we progressively decentralize. Cool. So what's the model? Again, what's the, like, where you guys maintain, maybe to get kind of more just technical uh, about it, but like, well, how, what's the setup, you know, how does it work um, in terms of like, you connect with an artist, you're commissioning them. Is it like a, is it a, like, anyway, like how are you determining like the price? Like all that stuff, where you, where is it minted? Edition size? Just give me, give me kind of like how you think about these things. So just to get it started, we wanted to have something that felt a little bit like a formula that we could work with artists um, and kind of build and grow from that initial sort of structure. 
So the way that the open editions have worked so far, and we've had four of them now, which is kind of wild that happened so fast, um, is that they are all forever mints on Zora Network. They're each priced at 0.05 ETH. Um, they are open editions and there's no max on how many times they have been minted. Uh, the theory on that, which is something that we discuss and debate frequently <laughs> as a team, is that we want the pieces to be um, accessible. And one of the issues with um, kind of closed editions, both in the traditional art world and then also online, but maybe even more like conceptually challenge more conceptually challenging to wrap your head around it on the internet is that um once a collection sells out um it's still proliferating online and as it spreads and more people see it um the more interesting it can become and mm. more people want to participate and support and become patrons of the artists so um we wanted this to be something that um wouldn't wouldn't be so gated um, be more accessible. And then as more projects are minted, some of the earlier ones would be even more appealing, which is showing up in the data so far. And you've set the, the prices, I think for all your mints have been consistent so far, right? They've all been 0.05. Uh, yeah. They have. Yeah. So we were one of the first projects to mint on Zora network. And the reason for that is gas fees are just nuts on me yeah. <laughs> and um we also just both really respect and admire the work and contributions that zora has made in in web3 to date and so it just felt like um you know brand wise or like creatively we knew mm -hmm. that we would be like among a really cool interesting community of other artists and creators there so um yeah, wanted to have like an accessible price point for people who are bridging over ETH for the first time. And then, um, you know, as the network has become more popular and more accessible, um, these pieces, I think, are becoming even more interesting because they're some of the first that are here. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, I've been thinking about kind of what Zora's doing and, and the idea of gas. I mean, A, I think... Uh, like something I really loved just for a, a quick sort of throwback here but for hicket nunk like the thing about that platform was it would just made the idea of going in and collecting stuff a lot of fun because it felt it wasn't cost prohibitive and you didn't have to think so much about like am i going to be breaking the bank i can get some cool work for cheap the gas is like very minimal and it like with the like zora's network feels similar because you're just even just to mint something is a couple bucks at most and to mint it even less so um, and I think it takes the focus off of price and, and I mean, not completely, obviously not talking about focus off the value, but more like the idea of things needing to be expensive for them to even be like worth, you know, buying. And so, um, I think, I think I, I really like what they're doing with it because it's putting the focus back on just the idea of collecting and scratching the itch of just being a patron of, of art for everybody and a more democratic way that kind of got uh, blocked maybe at the outset of NFTs because it was just about splashy headline prices and just like crazy bidding wars and all that kind of stuff. And like, that's cool, but it's not the, it's just, it's just not the 
even close to the average. It's, I mean, it's so far removed from what the average artist or, you know, person participating in this is going to experience. So um, I do like the idea of just like a, a more understandable price point that doesn't feel just totally absurd. It feels a lot of times like that's, and I know that is how historically NFTs began. I mean, early like super rare days and, and all that kind of stuff. And then it built up to this crazy fever pitch. And then it's kind of, um, you know, and I feel like that all had to happen in a way to bring attention to it. But I'd also think it's good that things have kind of normalized. I don't know what you guys think about that. Um, you know, or do you feel like, yeah, what do you, what do you think about that? Cause I mean, as prices kind of get back down, is it realistic that an artist could sustain themselves with this? Or does this have to be like a sort of like tertiary part of, of, of an artist's practice? <laughs> They're both thinking. Pride. Pride. Listener, they're um, thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is obviously like a really big topic to kind of take apart and, I think like for me, the reason why I've always been really interested in working with artists and find it endlessly interesting after years of conversation is because I think um, some of the most compelling artists are the ones who are looking at their medium with really clear eyes. And in crypto, some of my favorite artists are working with the market mechanics directly, mm -hmm. whether it's something that is, you know, really expensive or something that's really accessible and using that as like a point of commentary. Um, yeah. so it, it's less about, um, you know, just selling a work for millions of dollars. Otherwise you're not successful. And like a lot of the works that we're actually interested in commissioning through Gemma are ones that are um, kind of critiquing and playing with those market dynamics in playful or provocative ways um, that I think are going to really illuminate like different opportunities or different things that we should be critical of as consumers of this kind of and creators of this technology. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, there still are a lot of breakout sales that are happening um, across the space, but they're definitely kind of in different corners, a little bit more hidden. Um, but I think whether our work is, you know, a single one of one selling for $2 million or um, an open edition that's selling, you know, a million pieces. It's like the artists are, I think, very conscious of that environment and creating the works with those kind of different market levers in mind. So, uh, Aileen, you mentioned, I think, I don't know if you said 25 more this year or currently have 25 or 24, 25 artists planned or releases planned. I think planned. we have, yeah, I think we have 20 more and it was a total of about 24 to For start. The, throughout so. the end of the year. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So how do you talk about the relationships and the outreach and stuff? How is, so you're, you've already got that list set. And now they're all kind of on schedules and working on pieces and then there'll be a cadence to that. Or I guess I'm asking with an eyebrow raised as an artist myself and also one who's commissioned artists too. Uh, how do you like working with and waiting on artists and giving them deadlines and, and <laughs> dealing with that? Cause I know like scheduling and, and just the, that to me alone could be enough to make me want to like not do your 
your job, even just like trying to schedule for the <laughs> podcast sometimes, you know, as you guys know, it's just like, oh, yeah. it's like, or getting like someone saying, yes, I'm down. And then like not returning an email or DM after that. And it's like, so do you want to do this or not? I'm not trying to do you a favor. And like, <laughs> oh, no. especially now if you're talking about getting them paid no. too, and then people kind of, so yeah. But how is that? Like, how, how, how do you like the mapping out of the year and like the releases and all that kind of stuff? I actually really enjoy it. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about like enjoying the completeness of a project. And I think that the further along we get, the closer we are to some artists who have then had, you know, four to six or more weeks to work on a project. And we've been in dialogue with them for a longer time about what they're going to produce. I think that part of the impetus for Gemma is really to have those touch points and that dialogue and those studio visits with people both earlier on at the inception of idea and then like following mm -hmm. and tracing them uh, through the process. So that part I actually really love. Um, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but everyone does have like such a different working process and style. Um, and yeah, I do think that for a lot of artists, if your work is based on this really long-term slow research and rich narrative or conceptual frameworks, they often felt like this space wasn't necessarily built for them. Um, and so for Gemma to kind of open up that niche or carve out that space for artists to work a little bit more slowly, more intentionally has been really fruitful and interesting. How involved are you guys in the actual final work? So I think what you've minted four of other artists so far. Am I correct? The one, two, three, four, besides the manifesto piece, but um, Petra, Addie, Icaro, and Anna. Um, are you surprised when they turn in like the final work? Are you kind of working hand in hand with them at all? Or like talking through what the idea or concept might be? Like what's the, what's that relationship uh, like for, for you? Um, it's really, it's honestly deferred for the artists that you even mm -hmm. just mentioned for the first four weeks. Um, in some cases, an artist will share a little bit of a portfolio of works with us and we'll talk through it or Lindsay and I will both just become obsessed with one in a series mm -hmm. and kind of agree that like, that's the one that feels the okay. most yeah. like Gemma. Um, in other cases, um, we've been granted kind of like more insight into the process and like kind of develop the idea hand in hand. Um, for some of the future projects, I've even shared like some references with artists who are just a little bit earlier on in the idea phases. Um, so yeah, yeah, it really depends. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I know like, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting for an artist to just be like, Hey, just do whatever, you know? Yeah. We just want to commission you just make whatever um is kind of like <laughs> a nightmare for the artist a lot of times um so i i think most artists without saying it and a lot of uh clients or you know maybe I, I, people you know in, in sort of your role are hesitant to get either too involved or feel like oh i don't want to i don't want to tell you what to do i just want you to i think most artists are are generally looking for like something even even just like a nudge some towards, guidance yeah. Or what you said feels more Gemma, you know, like, I think that's, that's important, right? Like, like might what be does a, that mean? You're right. What does that mean? And I think it's important to consider that as, as you build up, you know, this sort of 
gallery as it were of, of works that you're putting together that things do feel you know not just sort of yeah curated but i mean there's there's some sort of of eye and 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 i guess like thread through everything that feels like why would it have been minted through with you guys and done here and not there or why this work and not that work um so even just being told like as an artist i think even just being told i think this is more fitting route maybe just go down this path like follow this we feel like this is the right thing i think is nice and again like i just i think a lot of sometimes there's like a a weird like dynamic between com- like the artist and whoever's commissioning that work or you know whatever to not overstep but i think most artists just want to feel some type of validation towards even a direction <laughs> it doesn't have to be tell me what to make but it could be like you know some 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 type of gentle nudge uh one way or the other um but so yeah. we're recording this on uh august 1st um uh, what's the next what's like what's happening in the next couple of weeks what's what does august have in store maybe in the fall like what do you or anything i don't know you could share that you haven't shared yet or just stuff stuff that you have in the pipeline not next to put you on the spot next week is going to be a really big week um maybe aileen can give us some alpha about um yeah, so next week on August 8th at 11 a.m. Eastern, uh, my TED Talk premieres um, on TED.com. And the talk really focuses on how artists are working with AI to creatively push the boundaries of the technology. Um, it features a lot of AI artists who are working in the NFT space, like Claire Silver. Mario Klingeman, uh, Sarah Ludi, Ivana Tao, and Sophia Crespo. And so Gemma is actually premiering a work by um, one of the artists who's featured oh, in the cool. talk, Ivana Tao. Yeah. Um, and we're really excited to just celebrate uh, that moment and, and the artists who are kind of featured in the talk. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, nice timing and sort of well sort of thought out cross promotion there of your talk with dropping something at that time. I think that's nice. I haven't even really gotten to, you know, talk and chat AI stuff. I know that's come up with pretty much like everybody I've interviewed so far Oh um, God! <laughs> in some way or the, in some form or another. Uh, do you, uh, yeah. And any, like, I don't even know what question to ask. I don't have anything like planned or prepared. I know. Other than it's to say, like, to like end on that note, you know. <laughs> no. Well, no. I want to. Well, uh, maybe, maybe we could skip over that. Uh, and and I want to ask you both how how you're uh, enjoying working. Uh, yeah, I think we've all been. Well, I don't know how remote you guys were through COVID and everything, of course. Um, but is this your both of your first times, like really doing your own? thing like truly kind of like independent having started something well we both ran galleries in brooklyn um previously but at this sort of scale and this sort of industry mm-hmm. this is our, this is our first time and there's a lot of like lessons learned in that um there are some questions early on about okay we want a certain artist fund how do we go about identifying like early funding resources. Is this something that you do through like a venture capital model? Is this something mm. that you do 
through donations? Is it a nonprofit structure? Is it a for-profit structure? Is it like angels and like so many different avenues that we've explored to kind of create something that is um, creating enough like sustainability for like the core infrastructure to persist and resolve some of these larger questions. Um, Can I ask what you kind of like where you landed? I I don't know how to lightly to tread on those questions or how much you feel like shedding light on that stuff, but it's um, something that's still, still evolving and we're still, um, you know, actively wanting to figure out what model will best reflect Gemma's values. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't think that's something that like is fixed and then resolved. Um, but you know, we know that we really want, um, an organization that feels community driven and that's supported and that's providing real value to artists. And we're down to, um, get into the details and figure out, even if it's a more like experimental model, um, you know, having interesting conversations with like lawyers or, um, token economics experts or, um, you know, financial strategists or like, what are, what are the like models that we can pull from to kind of Frankenstein, a cool model that will both reflect our values and make a sustainable mm. um, kind of opportunity for artists, which Honestly, if it was any other way, if we were just like, oh, we're getting venture capital or, oh, we're a nonprofit, it would feel too tidy and probably uninteresting to both of us. Mm. (laughs) But the fact that we're really (laughs) trying to create something new and pull from all these different models, um, I think we're going to ultimately arrive somewhere that's going to be pretty interesting. And I would imagine groundbreaking because it doesn't exist yet what we're trying to do. Mm. Yeah, it really runs the gamut, like the kinds of people we've spoken with and gotten advice from. But I do agree with Lindsay that what we find ourselves in will be something net new. Hmm. Um, so when you wake up and you guys are, do you have your, your daily call with each other at 9 a.m. every day? Or like, what's the, you know, what's the, what's like the daily sort of, you know, I don't know. I've, I've not done something where it's just me and like one other person. I mean, I've done like projects, but not something like I'm setting out. Like I've always been in complete control of pretty much all my own projects and, and, uh, more or less been the decision maker and, and, you know, made it, that's just how it's just been for, for me. I've not had like an endeavor where it's like, this is now my thing. It's me and you. So how lockstep are you? Is it like, pretty regular are you both like routine oriented people or one of you more so than the other are you trying to still figure out like how to be compatible with uh you know as you do this or is it yeah like is one of you night owl and the other one's like in bed at nine (laughs) o'clock like how's that how's that how's that going like how's the dynamic oh my god and i guess there's four other people involved of course um but so yeah different time zones um for sure i think that I've discovered that we're both morning people, which is an advantage, um, a strategic advantage. Um, and we do have like a weekly check-in with the full team um, just to organize everyone's thoughts and priorities for the week. Um, but I would otherwise say we're working really closely in a very async way. Um, there's so many different um urgencies and responsibilities across uh 
Gemma and what we're doing each week changes. So it, I think that the async structure really works well. Um, and yes, we are remote, which also works well for us. And as needed, there are a lot of walks as well. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, there's something big that we have to hammer out. Like, let's go for a walk. And that's nice though. We're going to solve this over the course of some matcha yeah. um, next hour. Nice. Um, well, I think, uh, we're coming up on, on time. Uh, any, uh, any plans for the, this week or weekend or any, any like end of summer trips, vacations, fun shit, anything you're doing that you're excited about non Gemma related just to end on a less work note. FWB fest, right? Mm. It's yeah, like two days from now, right? This weekend. Yeah. Are you excited? Are you I'm ready? Related though. Yeah. Yeah. I'm as ready as I'm going to be, you know, you're just going to do the Ted talk again. I mean, honestly, you probably could just show up and just do that again. Right? <laughs> I should. I know a lot of artists who just have like a talk and that's just, they, when they get invited to just, they, that's the talk they do. And maybe they update it with some new work, but I think it kind of depends on <laughs> like how it works. It works. Yeah, truly. Well, if it's a new audience too, I mean, who cares as long as it's like pretty current. But do you like, do you like public speaking? Do you like it in front of people and doing that is something you, and I mean, obviously you've embraced it. You did the Ted talk. Do you enjoy it? I guess I could say I've embraced it, but it's definitely not something I ever expected myself doing or being like Same. as a public speaker. Yeah, definitely. wasn't uh, when I first got into art and design, wasn't uh, expecting to go be invited eventually to speak at like schools or conferences or whatever. But um I don't know. I I always figured if someone invited you, like there must be a reason you must be, you know, it's like, well, all right, let's do this. <laughs> um, now, it's always... now you're the podcast host doing yeah. public all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly a lot easier when the only audience is like the occasional person who walks by my house out the window. And I just like glance down <laughs> and a lot, uh, less pressure, but, uh, well, thank you guys so much for talking. I really enjoyed, uh, just listening and, and learning about what you're up to. Um, I think it's, it's exciting. I think you both took a, a real ri like risk and gamble to just start something and a really noble one to support artists that you both love and, and, um, you know, in a way that feels really genuine and, and more accessible to more people and, um, very forward thinking ways. And yeah, I think it's great. I, I really do. And I'm, I'm excited, um, what the future holds for it. And yeah, that's, that's, pretty much all Thanks, I got, but I want to leave you both with any last words or thank you. Yeah. Oh, I was just like thinking after you said the word creative risk, that like, if no one's out here taking any creative risks, then you're just going to get more of the same. So that's, yep. that's kind of what we're doing here. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Thank you so much, Chuck. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. No, thank you guys. And, uh, we will talk with you soon. Have fun at FWB Fest. Bye. 